I'm Larry Friedman, and you're listening to the Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 78 of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast, telling stories from the LAFC community match by match, fan by fan, story by story. Today's fan happens to be some fan. Today we have co-president and chief business officer of LAFC, the Larry Friedman, joining us. Can't wait to get to the interview portion of the show a little bit later. But before, let's run through news and notes. As always, joining me, we have Mr. Christian Aparicio and Chris Sines. Gentlemen, welcome and hello. How are we doing tonight? Good to be back. It's, you know, it's feeling good to have these episodes again on a weekly basis. And uh, it's it's fun. There's there's a lot of big news coming out, just club news. We had some signings, more signings. We had the uh, MLS draft. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just always good to talk some footy. Really, no. Um, glad to be back on on a regular basis. I think our schedules are more predictable now, which is great. And then to piggyback on what Chris is saying, there's also some tentative schedule dates out there, which is exciting. And it's also a positive step in the negotiation. There's no actual news that come out, but the fact that dates or timeframes are out there means that there is going to be a season so happy about that as well. For the uh, February 22nd is the uh, preseason. Do you guys, and they were talking about the end of the season being in December, you know, with the current CBA negotiations, stuff like that, do you guys think that there's going to be a delay to the season starting on the 22nd? I think the preseason might have a delay. I don't think we'll actually see the season itself have a delay which I think is due to kick off the exact same day as Major League Baseball. So it looks like both of those sports will be kicking off on the exact same day, which is interesting. I, it, we might see a condensed preseason over CBA issues, but it sounds like both sides are very close. In So I don't think it's going to take much compromise for that CBA to happen prior to that February 22 deadline. I think in the next month they should be able to work it out, hearing that both sides are fairly close. But no news on that front as of yet. So fingers crossed that that pans out. Christian, what do you think is going to happen? I think they'll reach an agreement, even if if it's like tabled. I did I did think they chose a cool season start date, which is four three two one. I hadn't stuck hadn't stuck realized, out. To- I, hadn't, yeah, I hadn't even realized that one. But uh, yeah, let's you know, let's just jump right in, guys. Uh, I think the biggest news that just came out today, the breaking news uh, today, is Tuesday the twenty sixth. Raito had a interview with a Spanish radio in uh, Uruguay and pretty much what came out of it, which thank you to Ben from Heart of LAFC. If you guys have an opportunity to go read the article that uh, Benjamin wrote on heartoflafc.com, he pretty much went into greater detail, but the gist of it is, is that Brian Rodriguez is not too sure about his future with LAFC and he's, Obviously interested in playing in Europe at some point in his career. That's why he left Peñarol and came to LAFC. But it it seems like there's not a set plan for him, or at least in his mind. I don't really understand. I think, A, some of the comments have been blown out of proportion. And if you look at what was originally reported, the comment seems very salacious, right? Really seems like Raito's taking a dig at LAFC and doesn't want to come back. 
And thank goodness, you know, we have some great reporting out there. Heart of LAFC did a great job with this in really breaking down that radio interview and getting some, some better quotes out of it. And I think once you read their article, it paints a picture where he says, yes, his aspirations are to go to Europe. Yes, he sees that happening soon. He would like for it to happen in this window. But if it doesn't, he's going to report to camp in February and is going to be ready to rejoin LAFC. So I don't think we're looking at a situation where he's going to refuse to play or anything like that. And I don't really think reports about him wanting to go to Europe is any kind of news at all. LAFC wants to sell the player player wants to be sold he was signed with the intent to sell him on we know that the club that's in his heart is Peñarol he's always said that that was his team so we know we were never really going to take that place for him it was always going to be a launching pad situation so of course he wants to go to Europe and of course we're ready to sell him to Europe we're just waiting for offers. So I, I don't really think it's a whole lot of talk about nothing, to be honest. I don't think it changes the situation at all. I still think we were going to sell them, and I don't think this accelerates anything. Christian? Yeah, no. To me, when I read the article, listened to it, I'm like, oh, so you're reporting on how he's being honest about his aspirations and what everyone else knows. I think the the way the quote was cut and put out there does make it seem like He's putting the pressure on the front office to do it this this window. But the only offer that we have heard through the rumor bill has been a loan offer, right? With a potential purchase in the summer. But I don't think LAFC wants to do that. Some doubt on what's going to happen with the Rossi at the same time. Like, you know, if you're going to have to lose both, I don't think that's the position the team wants to be put in. So I think uh, Rayito is going to report. It's not like he's saying he's not coming. He's not holding out. It's not like the NFL when that happens he's going to fulfill his contract I'm sure he's getting paid a pretty penny and in dollars I guess the only better thing would be euros but until I see him not showing up at LAX I'm not concerned I find it interesting though you know after we had made the post and other people had made posts about the quote from the radio uh, there were people that were really really ready to sell him and that they had no problem they didn't feel like he produced what they felt like he should have produced and there were even some people feeling that he wasn't good enough to play in Europe because of what he of how he performed here in the MLS and I think people forget that you know every team has their own style and their own formations and system and you can see that he plays well and that he has a set of skills and he's an asset to a team from the way he plays for the Uruguayan national team you know so maybe just here at LAFC his his real attributes are not necessarily able to be highlighted. I, I mean, maybe Christian, you could talk more on that, but I, you know, it just, you can tell that he can play. And the fact that he hasn't scored as many goals as maybe you would have expected him to make for LAFC that I, I still don't think that he'll have a problem playing in Europe at, um, if he were to get sold in this window. I agree with you. I mean, there's been multiple offers right from Italian teams not to the LAFC's liking and to to speak on what you're saying in terms of different styles uh he's he's done well when he plays for the national team in Uruguay like you said and they play more of a more defensive and counter-attacking system what that does for someone like him who's really fast is leaves space behind the other team's defense where if he gets the ball in behind he is quick generally his touch doesn't have to be as clean when you're going that fast and you have one or two person to beat and then he's shown in the national team he has a composure to shoot 
Um, if you actually think back to last season, he did have one game where he chipped the goalie in the box, right? So I think what's missing for a team like LAFC is that closer touch where he can dribble, where you have more condensed space because of the way we play sometimes in the counter press. And then his composure in front of goal when there is a more congested box isn't necessarily there. I think he's more successful when he has a lot more space. So I think those are the things that Bob is trying to bring out of him. He's gotten better, but not in the liking of what LAFC fans and supporters want to see for the dollar we're spending on him. So I can see that argument as well. All in all, he's a great talent. He can go play in Europe. I'm sure he's willing to go. We'll just wait for the offer that makes sense and something in the pipeline to replace him. I just don't buy the idea that the route one ball over the top doesn't fit into LAFC's game. I mean, hello, Carlos Velo, two goals in two minutes to start the second half versus America. We've seen this recently that the team can play this way. So this idea that Raito's biggest strength is, you know, his pace and being able to get out in front of a defense and, and get that long ball over the top and that we don't quote unquote play that style I just think he hasn't figured out a way to fit into Bob's system to disguise that run and to time that run. And there's obviously a disconnect there between the style Bob wants to play and the style Raito wants to play. So, I mean, my two cents on it, Christian, obviously curious to hear, you know, what you think. That's an interesting point. Although I would say it's a bit more situational just because if you recall, we had 10 men. So we, we were playing slightly more defensive just because of the situation, right? So they weren't expecting us to be so defensive and then play a little bit of a counterattack with a ball over the top. If anything, you wouldn't really think of Segura doing that much in many other games. So even that was a little bit of an anomaly or something he took a chance on because he thought he saw something. At the same time, I do think that Bob does allow some creativity in the system and Rayito doesn't show it maybe because he's overthinking because he's being expected to play a certain way that he's in his head and then he overthinks things and then it causes him to lose a ball in big moments and doesn't produce the way he would be if he was playing in a more quote-unquote free system in his mind where he can do uh, things without being kind of told what to do. That's just my two cents in my observation. Um, I can see why some people don't want him to be here anymore when it's been here for a year and a half and he doesn't really, he doesn't score at what we expect at, at that average uh, in the season. Yeah, Either way. I mean, he's been a great player for us. I, I have no complaints about the quality of player that he is. I think he's perfectly capable of playing in Europe. I think there's interest. It's going to happen, you know, because he hasn't been able to finish at the rate we expect is disappointing. But anyway, I think moving on, we definitely have pen put to paper for a few different players. So biggest piece of off-season business, in my personal opinion, the permanent acquisition of Jesus David Murillo from Deportivo Independiente Medellin. Fan-freaking-tastic news. I wholeheartedly believe this person has defensive player of the year capability. The idea of him and Segura working together all season is something I'm ecstatic that we get to see. And I'm curious if you guys are as high on the acquisition of Murillo's contract permanently as I am. Chris, why don't we kick it over to you? I think that we all knew that during the season, there was a center back issue. We would have Blackman, we would have Djokovic, we, we would have, you know, different players trying to fill in that role with Segura. And it 
was a problem that we wanted to see fixed. And then we've got Mario coming in late into the second half of last season. And there were definite things that we saw and liked. Uh, and that was a, a signing that we wanted to see become permanent. I think he fits in well. I think that he played uh, very well in the CCL. And I, th- I think that he and Seguro make a, a good, they complement each other well. So I'm excited to see what, what is in store. And hopefully that is the beginning of a very solid backline. I'm super happy. He showed leadership. He's a strong, tall player that we need in set pieces. So there's trust there. I think that he fit in pretty quickly. Three games in, he kind of made a, a spot for himself. I think one thing that we kind of internally spoke about when we talked to Bob was that uh, in the backboard behind him or the whiteboard, he uh, we saw some JM, but we didn't want to jinx it and these things are never done until there's pen to paper and it's announced so we had an inclination that this would be done because it's a move that needed to happen I think um, and it seems like you know we'll, we'll talk about additional moves that we've seen this offseason but this one's I think one big one in order for us to be consistent to make sure we get a higher seed and then if healthy with him in the back line I don't see a lot of teams really creating significant uh, constant danger against our defense. So speaking of other acquisitions for $50,000 worth of general allocation money over to Philadelphia, we acquired the homegrown rights and ultimately the signature of Tomas Romero, a six foot one 20 year old El Salvadorian capped national team player. Well, at least uh, with the U-17s to be our third goalkeeper. Thoughts on this, what it might mean for the Cisniega-Vermeer combination, and just thoughts on the business itself as far as acquiring a homegrown player for our third keeper. I mean, anytime you get a homegrown player, it helps a lot because their position doesn't take any kind of international spot and things like that. There's there's all sorts of benefits that come with the homegrown player status. And having a player that's that's playing, that's in the national his national team system, it shows promise. But I mean, he's 20. He's still young. A lot of times we see goalkeepers tend to be a little older before they actually get uh, an opportunity to, to get their every game minutes. I think this might be interesting in the next season or two if we end up still having him after LAFC has their USL affiliated team. This might be something where he gets an opportunity to have the in-game minutes. And that's kind of something that hinders us for right now. We have a lot of young talent that just don't have the opportunity to get those live game minutes. Uh, I think that our depth will fill out once we have a, a USL affiliate that we can send players down or bring them up at will. Uh, so, but I, I think that it's good. I think that anytime you bring a player in like that, that's young and shows promise, it's always exciting. Yeah, happy to see that we're going to have a potential third keeper to push the one and two or two and one whatever it is in 2021, but um, don't know much about him. So I hope he performs well in training and can uh, push him, push him to, to start uh, or get a few games in the U.S. Open if there, if there are some of those matches. And speaking of young talent, right, uh, we did have our MLS Super Draft, the 2021 MLS Super Draft. For those of you that are, you know, listening, some of the key people that we've gotten out of MLS Super Draft previously were Joao Moutinho and Tristan Blackman in 2018. We had Peter Lee Vassell as a uh, second round pick in 2018. But for the most part, a lot of times these super draft players don't necessarily 
stay in the MLS for very long, you know, so we do have these players and we hope that they stay and that they are part of this club for years to come. But the, and they all seem to have, well, the first and the third guy seem to have LA roots or some sort of connection. The first player we got this year was out of the first round of the 14th pick was Daniel Trejo. He's a forward born in 1998. He's 5'9", 160 pounds. Birthplace is in Morelia, Mexico, but his hometown is Mendoza, California, and he is a local boy at Cal State University, Northridge, and he's a forward. Played for CSUN. He had 200 varsity goals in four years, 65 his senior year, California record, and uh, 2019 Big West Defensive Player of the Year with nine goals, seven assists in 19 matches. So uh, what do you guys believe about uh, Daniel? Will he make it? Maybe. I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him benefit of the doubt just because he was in the first round 14th pick. I assume anything in the first 20 has a more realistic shot of being signed. So hopefully, hopefully, hopefully he does provide some depth in the center forward or winger position. That's what I'm hoping. I think there's something to be said for the club reaching out to Danny Trejo, the actor, and Danny Trejo, the player, getting him to do the little welcome to the club. We've seen a few of those pressers sort of put out with his name on it. And again, sort of the same thing with Mario prior to the signing. We saw those pressers come out. I think it gives us reason to think that we could be acquiring the forward in this case, right? Especially with conversation of Raito leaving, potentially there might need to be some backup further down the depth chart if people are going to shuffle forward. So there does seem to be a little bit of marketing smoke there. And I don't think they would invest a lot of marketing effort in someone who they don't hope to pan out with the team. Now, ultimately, what happens when the player actually shows up in camp is a good question. CSUN being right down the street, I do know some people who work there in the athletic department. I was able to reach out. And as it turns out, a friend of mine uh, is actually a former teacher of his. And so I, I did get a few questions in about the man, the character, the person, and got some very surprising results from my friend who was his instructor at CSUN that said he was an incredibly intelligent, passionate, hardworking, and charismatic young man that he put in as much work in the classroom as he did on the pitch, and that this person saw big things of him. We know he's won multiple awards in the past as well, too. So I think there's a lot of smoke there, and I really end up hoping that Danny Trejo plays out for us. I think it would be wonderful to have a homegrown local talent end up being able to take over that spot for us that we might have seen in a departing Perez or a departing Raito if, if rumors do play out. So interesting to see how that pans out. We shall see. Our second round draft pick uh, is going to be Sisi Uche. Uh, we believe that sounds former uh, Chinaya Chidera is the Sisi, uh, which in the Igbo tongue means God gives and God has written. Uh, he is a center back born in 98, six feet, one inches tall, 180 pounds from Queens, New York. Shout to all our 3252 brethren from Queens, New York. There's definitely a few names out there in the pod fam that come to mind. Our friends at Defenders, shouts to Philly. He did grow up in Lawrenceville. We know he went to Ohio State University and was uh, a Big Ten preseason honor prior to injury. So a very interesting note on a player that got injured in the 2019 season, did not get to play, missed the entire 2020 season from COVID, so really hasn't touched the pitch in some time, but was considered a very, very high prospect prior to injury. 
But unless we see a USL partnership announced soon, I just don't know personally if there's going to be a spot for another center back. But hopefully he shows up to camp, performs pretty well, and is someone that we can loan out with a partnership deal in place to potentially have his reserves. But curious to hear your thoughts, boys. I think the, the odds are not with him. I think we're, we're, we're pretty deep in defense this year, which is, I feel, the opposite of what was last year. But, you know, you never know. Given him, giving him a shot in preseason and see what he can do, I'm sure he's going to give us his best shot and make a case for himself. But it seems unlikely, in my opinion. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it, it is. It's hard, like I said, too, with us not having a USL counterpart. Like, if we had a USL team, I think that we would probably be keeping a lot of these players because we would need to have a depth on that team also. So I think as of right now, it's it's hard to keep some of these players that are drafted in the later rounds. Um, but that may be a different story in a couple of years from now. So, but I, I wish him all the best and I hope that, uh, you know, he puts everything out there because this is, this is probably the shot that every uh, aspiring athlete would like to have. The third round draft pick 68th pick overall his name's Alvaro Quesada forward born in 91 5'9 150 pounds born in Granada Hills so he's a valley boy hometown of Lancaster went to UC Irvine and uh you know he was a 2018 all big west honorable mention so oh I think in my opinion good enough to be drafted uh good enough to be given a shot but i i think i feel like outside of the first round it's less and less likely which is kind of obvious but we'll see what he can do i think we have a lot of forwards this year some big name forwards and then some that have proven themselves in the in the league so uh, he has a long shot to be able to to, to prove himself but uh best of luck to him because the more depth we have the better as well and uh the last bit of news before we get into our interview with larry friedman tristan blackman who was with the u.s men's national team camp he sustained a concussion was playing right back for the u.s men's national team he potentially would have had his first cap appearance and it's disappointing to see him with an injury we wish him the best we hope that he recovers well from this concussion he is currently in los angeles now he he took a plane back when it was reported, I believe yesterday that he had the concussion and uh, there were reports coming out that Walker Zimmerman had been very helpful in mentoring Tristan Blackman while he was there in camp and getting him adjusted to the new surroundings. So we wish him all the best. And I'm sure this won't be the last time that Tristan Blackman gets an opportunity to represent the U.S. Makes that Kim Moon Hwan signing all the more important as a person who's had concussions in the past. They can linger. They can present issues for a very long time down the road. So fingers crossed that this was a mild concussion and one that Tristan can recover from quickly and be ready next month for the start of preseason. I don't think this should uh, affect his ability to get in once regular season starts. He should be well caught up by then. Fingers crossed. Well, that about wraps it up for news and notes. Why don't we go ahead and dive into our interview with Larry. Joining us now is LAFC Larry himself. It's Larry Friedman, our co-president and chief business officer. Of course, your 2019 MLS executive of the year. And if you're not following at LAFC Larry, what's wrong with you? More importantly, sir, welcome to the show. We got Larry. Thanks for having me. It is my honor and my pleasure. Thank you very much for making the time for us. It really, really means a lot. And thank you again for being a longtime listener. We're really glad to have you on. And it's been a long time coming. 
Yeah, no, you guys do a terrific job. It's always informative. It's entertaining. Every now and then it's good for laughs. And just want you guys to keep on keeping on because you create great content and imagine that you have a terrific following. So just keep it up. Well, thank you, sir. Speaking of content, we know this is not your first community podcast appearance. So in efforts to not double dip on questions that were already asked of you, we know some of your first exposure to the game of football comes in watching greats like Pele on Wide World of Sports. And then there seems to be a gap in the story before you become a season ticket holder with the NASL Chicago team sting. So our curiosity is, from the casual interaction with the game and highlights to becoming a season ticket holder. When did you, sir, fall in love with the beautiful game? Oh, I fell in love with the beautiful game as a kid playing in junior high school. It was one of those sports where the less creative, lazier gym teachers could say to 25 kids, here's a ball, there's two nets, divide yourself in half, make somebody stand in front of the net and let's go. And I've always gravitated to standing in front of a net as a street hockey player, as a kid, always put myself between the pipes and did the same with the beautiful game even though for those who know me, there's definitely a challenge with the height. So what position did you play? Give us a, a scouting report on Larry the player. I was a goalkeeper. And for the earlier part of my experience with the beautiful game uh, in junior high school, you know, wanted to be a goalkeeper and was told, no, you know, we're just going to take an unathletic tall kid because height matters, right? Didn't matter that there was no other agility or athleticism involved. It was a tall kid, so put him in the net. It wasn't until high school that I felt like I got a fair shake to actually be the goalkeeper and played throughout high school, went down to Indiana University a couple times for summer camp, which was like an incredible experience because at the time that was the or one of the three, five premier programs in the country. And it was a much narrower field of really high quality soccer programs in, at US universities. And so, you know, that helped me develop more skills, you know, get coached by some real coaches Ended up one summer, uh, saw in the back of a magazine an ad for Joe Matchnick's number one goalkeeper's camp. And that was before he was Dr. Joe, by the way. And it was kind of this traveling goalkeeper's camp that was going, I lived outside of Chicago. It was going to a military academy in Aurora. And it was a mind blowing experience to spend a week with just goalkeepers because you know, when I started playing, the idea of working with a goalkeeper or helping a goalkeeper develop was kind of like, go stand in the net and people are going to shoot at you. There was no breaking down of any of the skills that went into 
you know, actually learning and playing the position. Did you follow any teams at that time? When did you transition from being a keeper player to a fan? No. So I imagine a lot older than each of you. My ability to follow the game, like I grew up, there wasn't cable television. So no cable, no dish, no Premier League on NBC Sports. So you were really limited in terms of the content you could even consume. There were some local television stations up the dial that would carry, I assume, Liga Mekis or whatever it was called at the time, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s. So there wasn't really a way to go find it, to consume it. So I didn't have that chance until the Chicago Sting entered play in the North American Soccer League, you know, mid to late 70s. And that really picked up steam as a league. Pele comes over, Gerd Mueller comes over, Cruyff came over, Hugo Sanchez came up from Mexico. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, big international names who might've been a little bit older by the time they decided to play in the North American Soccer League. And, you know, we had a pretty uh, interesting cosmopolitan roster on the Chicago Sting. There are a couple of guys who had gone to Indiana University, Rudy Glenn, Charlie Ficus, Mark Simonton. And we had some big internationals, you know, a striker, Karl Heinz Granitza, who I've said to other people was a lot like Zlatan, because if you didn't give him the ball and you didn't give him the ball in the right place, he was screaming at you for 90 minutes. And Arno Steffenhagen, Wim Van Hannigan, who was on that Netherlands team that lost to Germany in the World Cup final, Derek Spaulding, a Scottish guy. So it was a wild group of people to watch. And I think all of the clubs in the league had similarly built rosters. So it was a great time and a great way to get exposed to the game. Knowing your, I guess, playing style as a young goalkeeper and then the modern game, do you have a player you think you emulated your game after? Oh man, I wanted to be, there was a goalkeeper on the Chicago Sting by the name of Tony Chersky, who had taken ballet lessons to help him, you know, with his leaping on crosses. And I just thought that was the greatest thing I had ever heard. So I didn't take ballet, but I thought about it for whatever that's worth. And I just, I thought the way that he played was the way I wanted to play. But, you know, you look now at the way the position has evolved, you know, keepers didn't use their feet. You picked up the ball, you had three steps, you bounced it and you booted it. The position has evolved greatly to the point where you have someone like Kenneth, who is used to being, you know, miles out of his net, kind of playing that sweeper keeper role. Back then, they could kick the ball to you and you could pick it up. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, if somebody kicked me the ball and I couldn't pick it up, I think I'd be in deep, deep water. Different times for sure. Yes. Well, I'm disappointed you didn't pursue the ballet career. I mean, I think, you know, Swan Lake by Larry would be be hilarious. I mean, yet another repurpose of the bank there. It could be a great show. There you go. Hey, well, look, Kareem took ballet. So there's no shame in taking ballet. His mother knew he was going to be really tall. 
and wanted him to be graceful and not clumsy. So ballet is all right. Uh, no, I'm uh, perfectly unashamed to say I, I go to ballet occasionally and enjoy it. I think it's, uh, it's awesome. It gets a bad rap, but we digress. Speaking of dancing, I suppose your career sort of danced around a little <laughs> bit as well, too. Uh, through early down. years wow. in, thank you, <laughs> from big law firms to tech companies, sure. we know you were involved in uh, one of the largest, if not at the time, the largest sale of a technological industry company. Uh, you were a senior VP general counsel and secretary, which which I find hilarious, at Platinum Tech, which yeah. sold for like three and a half billion dollars. That was when a billion dollars was a lot of money. Yeah, not just something you collected during pandemic, right? Sorry, exactly. Uh, a billion dollars um, is still a lot of money, man. That's. <laughs> <laughs> I'll t- yeah, I'll take it right now. Well, how involved were you in sports during that time as well before your career obviously took a turn for the sporting world? Sure. I was purely a fan. And as I have said to group after group after group of college students, whether they're from SC or Long Beach, UCLA, or we get a group that usually comes out on an annual spring trip from Syracuse, from their sport management program. I tell them all that they're decades ahead of me because I never thought about working in sports once the dream of either, you know, playing for the Chicago Bulls because I grew up outside of Chicago. So, you know, playing for the Bulls, playing for the Sting, you know, once you realize that none of those things are going to happen, it never dawned on me that there was a business side to the business or that there was sort of the baseball operations or football operations side of professional sports teams and clubs. So I was a fan. I grew up suffering mightily with a really, really bad Chicago Bears team that back when the NFL only played 12 games and Dick Butkus was kicking the crap out of people at middle linebacker, you know, they'd go two and 10, one and 11, never had a good quarterback, but you know, I, I've always been a bear fan grew up. I loved basketball. And so some of those old Chicago bulls teams pre Jordan with the late, great Jerry Sloan, the late, great Norm Van Leer guys like that loved hockey the Blackhawks were always part of my life. Grew up watching Tony Esposito, Bobby Hull, the great Stan Makita. You may not have seen him play, but you know Stan Makita's donuts from uh, the Wayne and Garth uh, Wayne's World movies. And baseball, diehard, diehard, diehard Chicago Cub fan. So I was just a fan of sports and I consumed what was available, watched anything and everything on television, again, pre-cable, pre-ESPN. So whether it was, you know, boxing, rodeo, bowling, skiing, uh, you name it, like, I'd watch it. We know that at some point in time, minor league baseball sort of enters into your career path. Yeah. So how did you become involved in the sporting world? And how did you migrate through the world of minor league baseball to something very near and dear to our hearts uh, in the Oklahoma City Dodgers? Pretty wild. So I had a great friend that I met when I first got out of school and was working at a big law firm uh, by the name of David Roan. And David headed west 
to work for Disney and evolved from being a lawyer to being a business development deal maker kind of guy. And from Disney landed at Fox Sports. And he ended up in, you know, one of the handful of senior most roles at Fox Sports. And he became buddies with a guy by the name of Howie Newchow. And Howie was at the time the president of a company called Mandalay Baseball that was owned in part by Peter Goober, now among many things, but LAFC's executive chairman. And David connected Howie and I, and I moved west. I had gone to grad school at UCLA, was kind of missing the sunshine, Chicago winter after Chicago winter after Chicago winter, and was looking for something interesting to do, had done all a bunch of things in the technology world that were fun and exciting. And my friend David put me together with Howie. And the next thing I know, I'm joining this company that owns a portfolio of minor league baseball teams all over the country and is looking to expand that portfolio, do some things in partnership or joint ventures with the New York Yankees and, and, and. Sorry, it seems like minor league baseball has some of the same sort of avant-garde approach to ownership that ownership currently with LAFC has employed. And I'm wondering if some of that experience in minor league baseball and the eccentricity of those teams and fan base, how much does that sort of overlap with what you see in a developing LAFC and MLS? So I think the commonality is fan experience. What's the fan experience in the building? Because in minor league baseball, you have no ability to control the product on the field. Obviously different in MLS. But in minor league baseball, you know, for example, let's talk about the AAA Dodgers in Oklahoma City. You know, if it had been left up to us, Corey Seager would still be the shortstop. Kike Hernandez would still be on the roster. Walker Bueller would still be pitching down there. But that's just not the way it works. And oh, Kike. Yeah, sorry. I'm a little, I'm a little heartbroken about Kike. It's a little soon. Thanks. But you, you, you quickly realize that I can't market Jonathan because one phone call five minutes from now and Jonathan is on a plane or on a bus or in a car going up a level or down a level. And I just made a big deal out of a guy who's not here anymore. And you also find that it's far more family oriented in terms of who's coming to the ballpark. You have, you know, baseball diehards who actually are there just for the baseball, but your biggest chunk of the fan base is families looking for a nice afternoon out at a value price or a nice evening where you can enjoy the weather, watch a little baseball, eat some hot dogs, kids get some ice cream. You watch the mascot do some kooky thing between innings. You leave in the sixth inning because the kids are tired, but who cares who won or lost? And we can leave early because, you know, it was 55 bucks 
for four people to go have a good time. No big deal, right? So the commonality is the fan experience. For us, when we thought about building the club and building a venue and what the experience at that venue should be like, we approached it in a similar fashion, even though we have that extra benefit of, oh yeah, we get to build the roster too. So we are responsible for the product on the field, what that looks like, whether we have recognizable names, unrecognizable names, whether we're investing in players that have a future or not. But we took the approach, and this goes back to Peter Guber, whose career going back to being a, a movie producer and running Sony Pictures, it's about butts and seats. And when you want to, you need to entice people to get up off their couch and come to your live entertainment or your entertainment venue. And you want them to have a great experience at every point of the journey. And for a sports venue, you know, it starts on the way in and how you treat it on the way in, everything in between, the presentation of the game. Is it a pleasing entertainment experience? Winning and losing helps, but you know, you also, you'll never be immune to the vagaries of winning and losing, but as much as you can try, you try. And if you're delivering a quality experience where people are having a good time, they're treated well, uh, your chances of riding the wave when things get choppy are greater. I think another commonality sounds like Peter Goober makes sure to incorporate or network the right kind of people and owners, right? To establish a culture of bringing those ideas that allow the butts and seats to happen, right? Yeah, so look, while some look at our ownership group and think, man, that's a lot of people, that's gotta be unruly and impossible to herd cats. And these guys just, you know, they just wanted to take a good class picture. That's all, that's all that is. And that couldn't be further from the truth. The reality is that you look across the group and it's very diverse experiences and expertise and connections in different parts of the business world and the world of entertainment. And we, rely on everybody in that group at some time or another to help. Do I admit that I burn up the phone line between my office and the front office at the LA Dodgers with Lon Rosen and Tucker Kane, or the front office at the Golden State Warriors with Rick Welch, Brandon Schneider, and Kirk Lacob? You bet I do. I'd be crazy not to, right? And there are other people like Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson is a serial entrepreneur. He's a busy dude. You know, he's got a lot going on. But when we need him for something, we call him and he delivers. And, you know, it's everything in between. People who are involved much more on a day, out, day in, day out basis. And some people that we may only pick up the phone two or three times a year 
But when we do, those owners hop to and help us with whatever it is we need. And that's magical. And, you know, a lot of that is, as you guess, Peter Guber. He seems like a brilliant networker for sure. So how did he employ those networking skills to land the biggest fish of all? Larry, how did you you get recruited to join LAFC? So Peter was the executive chairman of the baseball company that I joined. And shortly after I joined, the guy who recruited me, Howie Newchow, left to go run the sports business at CAA, which is, I don't know if it's the biggest agency or the second biggest agency on the planet. So that then put me in much more direct and regular contact with Peter. And so in and around 2012, we were starting to divest ourselves of the minor league baseball business or the, the teams that, that were in the portfolio. We had an equity partner who needed to get out. So we were getting out. And two things happened as that process was going. One, we ended up partnering with the Dodgers to buy the Oklahoma City AAA franchise out of that company and put it in a new company. And Peter started to get involved in the pursuit of an expansion second MLS club in LA. And he would stick his head in my office every couple of weeks and say, hey, I don't really know anything about soccer, but if I do this thing, maybe there'll be something for you to do. And that would be great. And so rolling up to October of 2014, he did it. And we always had extra office space at Mandalay Entertainment where the baseball company was housed because producers or casting directors that Peter knew from his journey in the movie business and he's still in the movie business you know would rent an office or two for three months at a time and so one day henry nguyen the original lead managing owner of lafc tom penn you know the guy who really started this whole thing and alice shane who was the first employee hired by the club She had been in player operations at the LA Clippers for a very long time and knew Tom from the NBA. The three of them showed up at the office and Peter did what Peter does. He said, look, I'm an investor in LAFC. I don't make all the decisions for LAFC. I'm going to introduce you to those guys. You you all figure out if you want to do something together. So, you know, I met Tom and Henry and Alice and off we went. And then I guess from those conversations starting, you integrated yourself. At what point that the ideation of brand and going out to the community and making it feel like a ground, a grassroots kind of approach, was that from the onset or is that something you all, after conversations, began to talk about and discuss? Yeah, I think it was always there because Tom's first exposure to MLS 
was the Timbers Army. And hate them as we do, you have to respect them. And once you've seen it, you don't forget it. And so that was in his mind. And then I came at it from the perspective of what we had done successfully in minor league baseball, which was, we would refer to it as creating a love affair between the team and the community and being good participants in whatever community we had a team in a ballpark in. And so those things were always there, but credit where credit is due. And we all know who, you know, really refined those ideas was Rich Orozco. And Rich turned up early in 2015, but he was circling around even before that. You know, he was at the announcement of the club in October of 2014. And so there were always conversations going on. And I am sure you heard the uh, FSA, FSA pod where Rich goes with Ty and Tway from Vietnam and the connection to Henry and Rich growing up with those guys and those guys being part of Henry's posse over in Vietnam. And it was just all meant to be, but really zeroing in on the specific ideas was rich, pre-rich. We did think about, you know, you know what we need? We need, we need a video person and we need a guy to go out and just go to bars where they're showing global football and buy people drinks and talk to them about global football and see if they might be interested in what we're doing and we'll capture it all on video. And one day we'll do this piece about the making of the club. So looking back at the early days and your role with the club and the mission that LAFC had set out, how do you feel that looking now in 2021, how we've upheld what the early day vision was? Yeah, I, I think that the, how it has played out is better than anyone would have mapped it out or even dreamed about it, right? Tom would always tell the story about the first watch party, which I think was for an El Clasico and, you know, less than a dozen people show up. And one of those is Fern, who shouldn't have even been in the bar because he was like 17 or 18 years old, right? And at that point early, you know, we were thinking you build a supporter section and the goal is to fill it. And we would have declared victory if we had like a thousand or 1500, you know, hardcore supporters season one. And then people, other people in the building would see that they'd want to be a part of it. And then, you know, maybe you're at two thirds or three quarters in year two. And by year three, if we had it filled, then we would have considered that success. Now you look at it and not only was it full year one, day one, before day one, but arguably I'm biased. So I will use the word arguably, arguably the finest supporter section in all of MLS. 
right? Uh, Merritt Paulson, who owns the Portland Timbers, would take issue with that. No but, argument on this podcast. Yeah, yeah right. I think so, I think everybody on this show agrees. Well, then it must be. So, and I think you know, look, we talked early about bringing people together, uniting the world city through the world's game and being purposefully inclusive because there had been other professional sports experiments in the city of angels where people were not necessarily openly inclusive about who they had hoped their fan base might be. And those folks did not meet with success. And so looking at where we are today and especially after the year or the almost the year that we've all endured and you you really have a sense of what has come together and it is better not by a little in all respects when it comes to the things we set out to do to bring people together to build community to be a force for good in the community and to bring joy to people, to make people happy. You know, there've been any number of experiences that, you know, just leave me with, that's why we do what we do, right? There have been times where I'll be waiting for my family to come down to the lobby on the way out of the bank after a match and I'll be standing by the elevator and I'm, you know, one of what? A handful of people running around the bank in a sport jacket. And people will just walk up to me and say, hey, I see you running around all the time. You work here, right? Right. I want to introduce you to, to my two sons. And I want to thank you for this. Because being able to bring my kids to be a part of this is awesome. And, you know, it's, it's moments like that where you're like, wow, like we're hitting the mark. Speaking of other LAFC memories, yeah. uh, you know, what on the pitch, what, what is the, the top one on the pitch in the community outside the stadium, maybe establishing that community kind of what you alluded to in the OKC experience. And then I think you just maybe touched on some personal ones, but maybe another yeah. example. Well, first, I would be remiss if I didn't shout out everybody's favorite potty mouth podcast host, Slim, and say that my favorite moment, I'm not just going to mail it in and say it's opening night, Saman. <laughs> Am I right? That would be lazy. Shouts and, to Slim. We love you, brother. And it's, you know, this is a, cra a crazy, crazy thing about, you know, what we've all experienced together is there are so many of these moments. And I'm gonna tell you a bit of a story that I think weaves it all together. But you think about, I think it was 58 seconds into our first match and a cross comes over and Latif heads the ball off the post. And like, hey, I think we're gonna be pretty good at this, right? And Year two, opening night at the bank, were in, I don't know, the 90-something minute, 89th minute, and it's 1-1 against SKC. 
And there we are again, kind of like on opening night, you're thinking to yourself, eh, you know, we didn't win, but we didn't lose. You know, it's not the worst thing ever. And, you know, ball comes to Harvey. I always compliment him on the great pass, which is actually he put a touch on the ball and it and it bounced to Diamande and he rocketed it home. So it's like, wait a minute, like that opening night in year one ended in a way that if somebody had tried to sell that script to Peter Goober, he would have thrown him out of his office. But we did it a second time. And, you know, and then there's Galaxy and all this other stuff, right? But for me, the thing that covers it all is in March of 2019, we got a message from a hospice worker who said, I have a patient whose wish is to come to an LAFC game. He and his wife have been to games before and he would like to come back. And so Matt Siner. Matt Siner. And so we invite Matt to a match in March against Salt Lake. And do you know who sat next to him during that game? I sat next to him during that game. That was actually Mandy's first game at the bank. Um, So after she went through, uh, you know, her, her bout, we ended up getting those seats right next to Mr. Siner and uh, Mr. Siner and Mandy got to share that entire experience together. And I was right there next to them when Walker Zimmerman came over after he scored the game winner and said hello to them when Will Farrell walks yeah. over uh, and said hello to them um, and, and Mandy as well, too. That was uh, an incredibly powerful moment well, this is a, just as an experience. Story, though. This is just the beginning of the story. And also sort of, you know, I, I, I think it might have been at some point in a American League championship series where Derek Jeter supposedly says to a teammate when they're losing, Oh, don't worry about it. Just wait for the ghosts to come out because that's how things work here at Yankee Stadium. And they end up coming back and winning. And there have been those moments at the bank where this stuff happens. And, you know, Nico puts a ball over to Walker who winds up, cranks it, gets a deflection, 91st, 92nd minute, and we win. And we had presented Matt, his mom was there, and Casey with jerseys and as you experienced Jonathan you know everybody came over and Will was generous and Tyler was generous and all this great stuff and get a message from Casey the next day that he said he could die a happy man after that experience and he ended up passing away that next week and that may, and, and this struck me, this really hit home with me because Matt was born May 25th of 85, my older son, May 21st of 85. So there's that, that like really is a stark reminder of how precious life is. And, you know, Matt was a guy who, as soon as he found out he was sick, adopted this motto of get busy living, right? And took nothing for granted. In May, Casey reached out and said, we're going to have a lot of friends and family in town. And we'd love to come back on his birthday weekend. 
So we had them come back. And by now, you know how this is. Like now it's everybody's, it's family. This is for life. And we did a thing at halftime, a tribute on the big board. And it was beautiful. And then I'm in Portland for the grand reopening that we so beautifully spoiled of Providence Park. And we are on a trip with some of our bigger sponsors, the Bank of California, um, Kaiser is up there, uh, YouTube TV. And we are treated by our partners at Adidas to take our other partners to their employee store outside of Portland and I'm running around and I grab a few things. I go up to the counter to check out and there's a problem with a price tag or something. And I'm wearing an LAFC golf shirt and the kid behind the counter turns around, looks at my shirt and says, Oh man, I love your club. To which I respond, I would have thought you were a Timbers fan. He's like, I am, but I love your club. You guys did this thing for my brother's best friend who passed away. And I say, wait a minute, Matt Siner? And the guy goes, yeah. I'm like, no way. So, you know, I say to Andreas, kid behind the counter, here's my card. You ever come down to Los Angeles and you want to come to a match, come on down. So he ends up coming down, his brother. Matt's wife, Casey, and it's another one of these family experiences. As if that wasn't enough, I then, that October, I get an email from Casey who says that a friend of theirs had asked, he was going to Burning Man, which I know nothing about. And I guess people do these vision boards or whatever, and then it all gets burned in this giant thing at the end. So the friend asks Casey if it would be okay if he did one of these things for Matt. And she's like, of course. So she then sends me a picture that was taken of that board just before whatever that last thing is where everything burns. And there's a handwritten note at the bottom of this board that says, Matt, didn't know you, but I saw you at LAFC matches. I hope you can bless the team to a title. We love you like family. Manny, we are LAFC. So like from that request from a hospice worker, to people who are now family, to Portland, Oregon, to this random like guy spins around behind the counter, looks at my shirt, you know, and it just happens to be him and me and not two other people in that store to this thing at Burning Man where the last thing you're expecting is an LASC note. So to me, that encapsulates it all. It's that we have built this community where everybody is welcome. And if you are part of this community, 
you are treated like family and it has this crazy beautiful way of growing and expanding in ways that you would never expect so for me and that included an incredible football moment on the field because you know you guys talk way too much about walker zimmerman and we can do a different episode about that you know that was a crazy ending at the bank like that if we didn't have all those other ones you know that would that could stand as the greatest moment at the bank but we do have those other ones so anyway sorry for the uh long winding story but i i felt like there was a thread that ran through that one that kind of hit on all of those points yeah absolutely obviously we're very fortunate to have jonathan on here who can attest to all of those things that you're talking about in, in terms of being accepted with family and the outreach from a loved one uh, when when there is a loved one that that um, was going through a, a difficult time and it is that's those are amazing stories and, and it's interesting how these little events can just branch out and carry weight and influence in other aspects and it is it's a beautiful thing that I and I think that that's also part of the reason why you get people to come back and they're so invested in this club because there is such an emotional attachment to it on top of a good product on the pitch. Now there is a potential script for Peter. There you go, for sure. Most recently, December was exciting and then slightly not what we wanted, right? In terms of Champions League. But I'd say it was probably around this time a year ago where a newcomer in terms of a club in this region of the world was able to participate in a draw, earned it, and you know was able to stamp their name in that competition. One of the interesting things I thought and one thing I wanted to ask is if Pio Herrera at that point asked for your autograph or did he wait until after uh, the CCL match in December? Yeah, so the funny thing about that experience is that it's in Mexico City, heavily weighted towards the teams that are participating from Liga Mekis. And I'm telling you, like, we walk in, uh, they have a red carpet on the way in with, you know, step and repeat and the media is there. Nobody gave two sh- We were there. Not at all. Like, Rich being the ex-TV producer guy that he is, got him to come over, take a picture with me, take a picture with us as a group. He didn't care who we were. He didn't know who we were. Didn't matter to him. He was moving on. He was like the bell of the ball right? And it was funny because then, and of course, they ask that the coach and the general manager from each participating club come to the draw. And Bob and John, you know, so I end up going, right? And the only thing anybody says to me is don't draw Leon. But then we draw Leon and Leon was excited, I think. You know, they came and found us and we're all excited about hosting us. And perhaps they thought it might be an easier draw than it turned out to be. And then on the way out, you know, people wanted to talk to us a little bit from the media because obviously Carlos coming to Mexico was a thing. But, you know, the way the whole thing played out, other than the last 20 minutes, right? And the way the 3252 was 
walked around and around and around and around and ultimately treated once inside of the stadium in Leon. People may not have known our name before that tournament, but you can bet they all know now. And the next time we get there and there's a draw, people like me are gonna get an instruction that goes something like, whatever you do, don't draw LAFC. Because I don't think those clubs, the clubs from Mexico are gonna wanna draw us after the way we play. I definitely, leading up to the restart in the CCL, the tone had changed after the Leon two-legged series and after Cruz Azul and America, the paradigm shifted in terms of how it was discussed on their shows and the attributes and even sure. the way they described our football. So it was super interesting to just see that all change in three weeks. Like it, it got progressively nervous and well, it was very interesting where, you know, it got, it got into that conversation of the catching up. It's like, no, you know, they're not catching up, it's like, but they're good. It's like, I'm not saying they're not good. So it was just, you know, I enjoyed it. For 70 minutes, or well, I guess it wasn't a full 70 minutes because whenever we scored, but up until about the 70th minute, they were facing a pretty harsh reality, right? And as my friend who is no longer employed by Club America, you know, who said that they were bigger than everything and whatever he said, we all know how that worked out. Amen. Well, I, I'm certainly glad we drew Leon. That ended up being one of the greatest experiences of all of us who got to go down there, our lives. Uh, not only being able to help out in the community down there, but just the culture, the environment, that crazy march to the match, that oh, whole yeah. game. And an and epic moment, sure. In It's hard to think that that was just last year. It seems so long ago. Anything on the other side of COVID. Right. So 2020 obviously had ups, downs, amazing moments, uh, an incredible CCL run but ultimately fell short of silverware. So let's look forward to 2021. We know that you're not directly responsible for the formation of the squad, but certainly a lot of work has been put in by your peers in order to get us ready for this upcoming season. I would say all of us here on this show are pretty impressed with the team and the work that has been done this off season. So what are your expectations for LAFC in 2021 in our various competitions? Yeah, look, I've said it before and it seemed to have worked. Um, The approach that John and Bob take is that if there is a trophy to be won, whether that's the MLS Cup or the US Open Cup, Champions League, you name it, that we don't mail it in. We put our best foot forward and compete to win. And, you know, we other than the supporter shield, which was a wonderful achievement. You think about how we've done along the way, year one, year one, we make it to the semifinals and get eliminated on penalty kicks in Houston, where had we won, we would have hosted the final. You know, year two, we get to the Western Conference final would have hosted cup had we won, but we didn't. In this wonky year, year three, we, you know, advance out of group play in the MLS's back tournament, end up dropping that match to Orlando 
at the finish and losing PKs. And then we go on this magical, you know, run of redemption, really, because I think we all did not like the way the 2020 season played out. Definitely didn't like the way the playoff match against Seattle went and the way it fell on the calendar and people off on international duty and all of that. And then we, you know, have this run back in Orlando in the restart of Champions League that was just spectacular. And we get to our first final and we're in it. You know, the game, we coulda, woulda, shoulda won it and it didn't turn out that way. But, you know, I think it's one of these things where, and I, I think you guys have talked about it, where we've gotten so used to getting the better end of it when we play that you forget that this was just our third season. And the third season was, you know, the world was upside down and sideways. So, you know, what we've accomplished and the progress we've made you know, year one, we make the playoffs and we don't win a game. Year two, we make the playoffs and we win a game. Year three, we get into Champions League and we get to a final. Don't get the job done. So, you know, there's a lot to be proud of and you can see progress. And what I love about John and Bob is they never rest. You know, even this, you know, every season there are moves made within the season to try and improve you know lee win was somewhere in the middle of season one for example you know and even this year mario mahala you know it's always evolving always trying to get better and then look you did some episodes where you talked about you know how different things went during the year and evaluated the roster and talked about where you would like to see or predicted some improvement. And, you know, we're never all going to agree on, you know, this is the priority or that's the priority. But one thing that you've got to give Bob and John credit for and the entire soccer ops staff and our ownership for backing it is that we never stand pat and just say, I like the hand I've got. I'm just going to play on. It's always trying to improve. And look, there are, you know, the defenders of the bank have made this running joke out of Andy Nahar, right? Because unfortunately, Andy played almost not at all. But, you know, the thought process that went into signing him made sense. You know, this was a guy who was recognized for his early performance in the league. And if he was healthy, could have been a real contributor. Unfortunately, he wasn't healthy. And so, you know, John and Bob have gone out and tried to address that issue. And they've tried to address other issues, midfield depth, depth up front, and whether they've addressed, and I'm sure they're not done, right? And so whether they've addressed every issue on my list or Christian's list or Jonathan's list, or Chris's list, 
you know, that's not the point. The point is that they've got their list and they're always working it. And, you know, you do sometimes, you know, you, you can't be right all the time. And I will admit that I listen to some of the Galaxy podcasts and just to hear what's going on in that neck of the woods. And look, some of those guys make a great point. It's like when they hired GBS, nobody was jumping up and down saying horrible decision, horrible decision. What are you doing? People were excited about it. And they, they thought there was great potential. It didn't work out when they signed Mr. Javier Hernandez. Nobody was saying, oh, my God, that was terrible. People were excited. They thought there was great potential. And he still may fulfill the potential. It just didn't happen this season. So I think, you know, you can look at the decisions that have been made and they're rational. And if they all worked out, life would be magical. But so I'm pretty optimistic because I think, we look, we proved in the run in CCL, we can play with anybody. We can play with anybody. And when we are on our game, we're pretty hard to keep up with. And, you know, look, even we can be down 11 men to 10 and we can still come get it. Um, so, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty optimistic and I'm excited to get back at it. And I can't wait till we get to that point where fans are coming back. And I've said this before, I'm looking forward to the grand reopening of Bank of California Stadium. And that is not the night when we can have 3,000 people or 7,000 people. That's the first night when we can have 22,000 people. And the 3252 is in full bloom and the building is full and it will be better than April 29th of 2018. I'm convinced after everything that we have all been through and continue to go through, getting the family back together, uh, whenever that is, is going to be an epic event. Well, what do you think a return to the stadium is going to look like in 2021? What stages would you like to see in a perfect world as we begin to, you know, hopefully get people vaccinated and ready to return to in-stadium? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody knows just yet exactly what it's going to look like. I imagine that masks will still be part of our lives. We are intrigued by the fact that um, the Miami Heat have deployed COVID sniffing dogs, which you should, if you haven't read that, Google it, fascinating. You know, and I think that things will be more touchless for sure. Automatic paper towels, sinks everywhere. People aren't gonna be using cash. Um, we already had the digital tickets and, you know, what else, what other technologies get deployed, you know, health pass with clear, who knows, but, you know, we're open to doing whatever we need to do. And we've got our eye on other venues, you know, like in the state of Florida, in the state of Texas, where they've been having socially distanced crowds for quite some time, actually. And even in Ohio, for example, you know, the Cleveland Cavaliers have a couple thousand people in their building. And we're 
watching how all of that is working, what technologies they're deploying, high-end air filters, high-end cleaning protocols and products, because you know we want to be at the front and be using what it, whatever is considered best of breed, whether it's product, technology, practice. Uh, we want to be there, so hopefully we can get open sooner rather than later. Well, brilliant. That is very exciting news and hopefully something we all get to experience. I know uh, every single one of us in the community misses the tailgates and the in-game experience quite a bit. That has become a significant part of our social structure and routine and, and something we really look forward to. So hopefully we are back to that very soon. It is part of my match day routine to take at least one lap around Christmas tree lane to see, you know, what are the Cuervos cooking? What are the Luckies cooking? What's the D9U cooking, you know? And what are people drinking? This is not a, hey, it's some beer in a cooler, hot dogs and hamburgers kind of gathering. People really, they really take it up a level and try and be creative and do something different every match. So I love to get out there. Of course, it's yeah, it either is. Heineken or Angel City or Coppola. <laughs> and don't Shouts forget to our future sponsors of the show. Yeah. Yes, That's yes. Right. The good folks at Salsa as well, too. Larry, can you put in a call, please? Yeah. <laughs> well, sir, again, thank you so much for being so very generous with your time this evening. It is amazing that you make yourself accessible in this regard to all of us within the community, be it walking around a tailgate and having, you know, some food. Uh, of course, we've never seen you consume any alcoholic beverages at the North End, of course, but that you're observing us do so. It, it just speaks to your involvement and a level of engagement that this front office has in our fan base, in our community that is so refreshing, something we have not seen in sports ownership in this city before. And the fact that you are a part of the execution of that is something we are all eternally grateful for. So thank you for that, sir. Oh, thank you. Can I add one thing? Fire away. Because I, I thought for sure you guys were going to ask me about my favorite moment from the uh, CCL tournament. And I would have to choose, and you guys can help me, whether it was Bob Bradley screaming Mahala before that ball, as that ball's going across before he rockets it in. Or when we hear him scream, Carlos, you're in on the second goal uh, that he put past Ochoa. I would say that the, uh, the Carlos, you're in, you know, I mean, you know, granted, yeah, the Mahalo goal was the one that got us the, the lead over Cruz Azul and got us into the next round. But that second goal from Carlos within 90 seconds of second half, I mean, and being down, right? The the change of emotion that came over that after that second goal was amazing. That was something that I'm not normally an emotional sports fan. I ride the ebbs and flows of games and things like that. And that was one of those moments where it got me up out of my seat and I'm, you know, elated. I agree. That, that was a moment for me because I wore an America jersey for eight years growing up with the club team I played in the Park League. And I was so pissed in that game, uh, specifically at Ochoa. So the fact that he got two goals real quick, shut him up, shut him down, send him home, and got a firing soon thereafter. Uh, to me, not only the, the shout of Bob, but like the ramifications after 
were something that I will never forget. Like what I was doing, how I reacted is it's just it's just an interesting thing. And fun fact, that's I think that's when Rich had just put himself on Instagram live and he reacted live to that second goal. Oh wow. Wow. All right. I am gonna disagree just because I want the Mahala ringtone as my text alert. You know, just whenever I get a text, I just want Bob screaming that name. Uh, the emotional roller coaster of those two goals coming in quick succession is something that, I, I mean, again, I, I don't know if we'll ever experience another event like that. I hope we have many more of them. But because I think the Vela you're in, like we all kind of were just so blown away that that was even happening, that none of us thought that could happen. But when that ball came out to Mahala, Bob echoed what every single LAFC fan watching that moment was yelling at their own TVs. And the fact that you're just like, it's Mahala. Oh, I, I love that moment. And it, I just, the audio of that will always stand out for me. And if there is anything positive to take away from what has become our consumption experience of this game in the course of 2020, that ability to hear what Bob is yelling on the pitch has something that has been amazing yeah. uh, for all of us, I think, especially in the pod fam and those who like to dig into what is he actually thinking in that moment. That's been so cool to have that, that little snippet of an insight into what he's uh, communicating out there. But yeah. I, I love that. I love that. Those are, those are great moments, both of them. But with that, thank you. No one ever turns the table and asks us questions. I love that. Hey, you totally, you, completely caught us off guard if there. You, if you saw me on Beta Time, the Emmy award-winning show that Beta used to do, it's what I do. Yeah. Well, no. Look, you're you're a Pod Fan member already, so I mean, it's uh, it's only befitting. So finally, sir, our last question for you sure. to the day is: What does shoulder to shoulder mean to Larry? Yeah. I mean, I think it is the cornerstone or a cornerstone of the club. I think this is an example of it. I think that throughout our history, the way that we have done things together as a community, and whether that's, you know, Rich and I, and some of the other folks going over to Dortmund, with supporter leaders or, you know, supporters going to Gensler's offices to talk about what the stadium should be, what it should look like, what that experience should be, the way we come together to serve the community for all kinds of charitable causes, the way we come together when somebody needs help. And we talked a little bit about that earlier. And just the fact that people understand that that's what this club is about. If you ask Bob or John or Jimmy Lopez, Julio, Jaime Camille, Colin Hanks, Jordan Harvey, Carlos Vela. You know, everybody understands that that is, that is the core of this club. And if you want to get the most out of your experience as part of the club, whether you work at the club, you play for the club, 
you support the club, whatever your connection and participation is in the club, the way that you will be most fulfilled is to really embrace the fact that you're in it with this wildly diverse and eclectic group of other people and just enjoy the ride. Beautiful. I love it. Hunter S. Thompson, buy the ticket, enjoy the ride. I'm all for it. That's uh, absolutely brilliant words from a brilliant man. Thank you again so much for joining us. And thank you to everyone out there. Thank you, everyone out there listening. This has been episode 78 of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. You can catch us on all your social media platforms at LAFCS2S. And of course, you're already following at LAFC Larry. But if you're not, what is wrong with you? Get in there, press that follow button. Some great content coming from a great man. And thank you again so much for joining us today. On behalf of Chris, Christian, sound engineer Wilton, and myself, thank you, LAFC Larry, for joining us. And that'll wrap it for today. Take us home, sticks. They won't need to stop, but I ain't. Come to my house, I'll defend that bank.